pray. Lord, we pray that you will help us to hear your word, to understand it, to know how to apply it to our lives, to remember it, to be changed by it, and to do it. Amen. So this is the last of the sermons on Colossians. You will notice that there's a little bit more of Colossians. I couldn't fit it all into uh, five sermons. So I would encourage you uh, to read the further instructions from chapter 4, verse 2, and the final greetings, very personal uh, remarks from Paul to his friends. And I need to add something to what I said last week. Remember how I told you that in the early church, uh, many, if not most, Christians were baptised naked. I forgot to tell you that men and women were baptised separately. (laughs) So, Paul has been talking to this little group of newish Christians in the Lycus Valley in what is now Turkey. And he has told them that Christ is everything. Christ is all in all. They do not need to add any mystical stuff. They do not need to set out on a regime of starving themselves or uh, being harsh with their body to become more spiritual. They have Christ, therefore they have everything. That whole section is what makes some people think that Paul didn't write Colossians because normally when he writes, he is very careful to tell people that they don't have everything yet, that there is both a now and a not yet to Christian faith and experience. Myself, I think that the problems that the Christians in Colossae uh, were um, being harassed with um, explain why he was being so strong. But you pay us your money and you take your choice on that one. And even if Paul didn't write it, it's there in our New Testament. It is the word of God to us. Then he tells them, uh, as baptised people, to put off the old clothes that were part of their behaviour in their life before they became Christians and put on the new clothes of um, grace and love and forgiveness and putting up with each other within the church. And finally, to put on love as like a garment that covers the lot and holds itself together so that the Christian individually and as a church is marked by love. 
And having done all that, he says to them, this is what it's like in the Christian community. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And hold that thought because we will be coming back to it. Now, as he approaches the end of his letter, he uh, enjoins upon them three other things. Peace, thankfulness, and wisdom. Peace, thankfulness, and wisdom. And this is not just any peace, not just the peace that is the absence of war, but this is the peace of Christ, a spiritual gift from people who are now no longer, in people who are now no longer at enmity with God, but have been forgiven and renewed and Christ dwells in them. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. But that peace should not just stay in their hearts, it should mark the body of Christ as they meet together. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace. And if you've been around the Christian church long enough, you can probably think of examples where they, the church is not living uh, in peace within its community. And be thankful, he says, and let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And that peace and thankfulness and wisdom will flow over into music as we've sung this morning. Psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude. And then a kind of summary. Whatever you do, you Christians in Colossae, you Christians in Leaderville, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, whether you are mowing the lawn, doing the dishes, or whether we are working on the computer or playing with our children or running in the city to surf, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let everything in your life be transformed by the fact that you are a Christian and that God's love and grace and the Holy Spirit dwell in you. Now, that kind of sounds like an end. It's a, a real summary. And for a number of reasons, that is why people, some people think that even if the rest of this letter is written by Paul, this next bit, uh, the instructions for Christian households, is not. But 
I suspect that they're wrong because there's more in this than meets the eye. It is a brave person who in 2018 stands up to preach on this passage. But it is, and we tend to hear it and think, oh yes, ho-hum, you know, everybody, everybody behave themselves and keep all the order that there ought to be. But it's not like that at all. It's actually very radical for at least two reasons. One is that although these household codes were actually common in the Greco-Roman world, this is not like the rest of them. For two reasons. One, it actually gives you both sides of the picture. The household codes typically said what wives and slaves and children should do. But Paul says also what husbands and parents, uh, because in verse 21, fathers could equally well be translated as parents. Um, and right down in chapter 4, verse 1, masters, he tells them what to do as well. One of the problems, oh, and the other reason is that when there were household codes, the reason that they had them, the reason that was always given was that it makes the empire stay together. It keeps everything in line. It keeps all the hierarchy in its proper place from the emperor at the top to the slaves at the bottom. But that is not the reason that Paul gives these instructions. He gives them because he says they are fitting in the Lord or this pleases the Lord or do your work if you are a slave in reverence for the Lord. The normal underpinning of this is not there. This is not about keeping the emperor at the top and the slaves at the bottom. This is about pleasing the Lord. You may have noticed that the slaves get the most said to them. This is because in the early church there were very many slaves in the church. Perhaps because the Christian teachings offered something to slaves that they were not getting anywhere else. And also in the early church, there were a lot of women. We know this because we have some of the insults that were written uh, to, uh, about the church. Ah, the church, the Christians, it's all full of slaves and women. Don't have to pay any attention to that. It is perhaps the same reason that when the gospel went to India, the Dalits, the untouchables, 
where the person who responded to the gospel in great numbers, something was being offered to them that their own society and their own religion, which oppressed them and segregated them, was not offering. There was something very attractive about the gospel of God's love and grace to the Dalits, to the slaves, to the women. And this is also very different from what Paul would have originally been uh, involved with in what the Old Testament has to say about slaves. If you were a master in the Old Testament, you could essentially do what you liked with your slaves. There were only two constraints. One, if you beat them up so badly that they really couldn't work anymore, you had to offer them their freedom in reparation. In fact, in some ways, masters were better off if they killed their slaves. And if you made your slave girl pregnant, you had to acknowledge the baby and you had to make her a concubine in your household or a second or third or fourth wife. If your slave was Jewish, then when they had served seven years for you, for you, you had to set them free. But apart from that, if you owned a slave, you could do what you liked with them. And it was much the same in the first century world where there were slaves. Essentially, you could do what you liked. And if they ran away and you caught them, you could kill them. And hold that thought because we will come back to it. One of the problems of this whole uh, household code that we have here is that we have read the wrong bits. If we are husbands, we read what it says to the wives. And if we are parents, we read what it says to the children. And if we are, we won't be slave owners, but if we are employees... Uh, we read what it says to the slaves. If we are employers, we read what it says to the slaves. We read the wrong bits. The second thing that is a problem is that we tend to take the household code, carve it in stone, put it up on the wall and never look at the rest of the New Testament there is a very profound principle of the interpretation of scripture which says you must not push your understanding of one point so far that you make it contradict another point. There are things in scripture that need to be held in tension, both and, not just either or. So we tend to 
not take in the bigger picture. So here's the bigger picture about slaves. Only a couple of paragraphs before, if Paul wrote in paragraphs, he said, here in the Christian church, there is neither slave nor free, but Christ is all. And there's a little story going on behind the letter to the Christians at Colossae that is not evident as we read the text. We have to read another book of the New Testament called Philemon or Philemon, depending on uh, where you learned how to pronounce it. Philemon or Philemon is a member of this church. He belongs in Colossae, he's part of the congregation. And he has slaves. One of them, we even know his name. His name was Onesimus, which means useful. And Onesimus obviously didn't enjoy being a slave of Philemon because he ran away. And he ran away so far uh, that he ended up in Rome. And somehow, in God's grace and good purpose, he ended up in the church around the imprisoned Apostle Paul, who was under house arrest. And as part of the influence of Paul's teaching, he became a Christian. Now, what is Paul going to do? He's got a runaway slave in his community. And Paul, his first um, purpose in life is to preach the gospel. He is not there to free the slaves. He is not there to liberate the women. He is not there to save the children from oppressive parents. He is there to preach the gospel. But the gospel makes a profound difference when you have a slave and a master who are both Christian. Paul dares to send Onesimus back to Philemon, but with a letter, a letter that says, um, if you like, if you like, I'll pay for his freedom because uh, slaves could buy their freedom if by some means or other they got the money. And also often uh, masters uh, in their wills would free their slaves. So there was, there was hope if you were a slave that you could be freed. So Paul says, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for him if you like, brackets, not to mention Philemon, everything that you owe to me, close brackets. And he says, now he's your brother. Now he's your brother in the Lord. Everything is different. Will you send him back to me because I can use him? in my ministry here. You can keep him, you can kill him, 
but he's your brother. Everything has changed. And although Matthew's gospel was not written at this point, collections of the sayings of Jesus were in circulation. And in Matthew 20, we hear Jesus saying something that makes a profound difference. He says, The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it shall not be so among you. Those who want to be great should serve, and those who want to be first should be the slaves of all. The gospel is undermining the institution of slavery. And it works. It works. It takes a while. It takes a while, but in the Christian world, slavery disappears. The radicalness of the gospel makes it go for a while. And then you find that people are again tempted by the power and the money that they can get from slaves. And slowly it works its way back in to Christian society. I was told this morning by someone who knows more history than me that when um, 1066 happened and the Normans invaded England, there were thousands of slaves in England, though it was a Christian country. They had let go the sharp edge of what the gospel has to say about treating one another. And the battle to get rid of slavery had to be fought all over again. And it is an example of the way that passages like this have been misused that in the 19th century, the slave owners um, in the, the West Indies, the plantation owners, English plantation owners, Christians, and in the southern states of America, they said, well, look here, Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. It's okay to have slaves. Paul doesn't say anywhere that you've got to set them free. And they're right, but they are not reading the whole New Testament. They are not letting themselves see that the gospel has radically undermined slavery. And now, in 2018, we find that it is back with us. Our vegetables were being harvested a year or two ago uh, up around Wanneroo, essentially by slaves. And when the Immigration Department uh, raided... I suspect, maybe I'm being a bit uncharitable, 
that they were more concerned about the illegal immigrants than they were about the suffering of the people picking the vegetables and being not paid and living in terrible circumstances. I think they may have been uh, more concerned about the illegal immigration. But there they were, in Perth, slaves. And my sister, who lives in the UK, uh, told me that there is a proliferation of nail bars, as there is here, uh, and many of the young Vietnamese women in the nail bars are slaves. They are slaves. Now, and they're giving people instructions on how to tell if the people doing your nails might be slaves. Now, I go to a nail bar and it is run by Vietnamese people, but I've actually got to know them quite well and it's two families and uh, there is no question of any of them being slaves, far from it. But maybe there are. If it's happening in the UK, might be happening here as well. And there is sexual slavery all over the place. Bali is rife with it. Sexual slavery of both young women and boys. And if you go to Bali, you're planning to, go to a website called Dark Bali and it will tell you what to beware of and it will tell you which hotels are not complicit in sexual slavery. And they suggest very strongly, don't go to any other hotels because if they're not on that list, they will be complicit in sexual slavery. We, as Christians, have to stand up and fight this issue all over again. Going back one, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Parents, do not embitter your children, or they will be discouraged. I was in a small group once, not one of the small groups in this congregation, where we had a family with two primary school-aged boys. They were not physically beaten, but the discipline meted out to them for the ordinary things that primary school-aged boys get up to was harsh and inflexible and totally inappropriate. To my shame, I thought about it again while I was preparing this sermon, to my shame, I never said anything. I haven't got any children. What right have I got to say to anybody anything about the way they discipline their children? But there were other families there who did. And the way that they dealt with their children actually made some of the social events that we had together absolutely miserable and embarrassing. I lost touch with that family when I went to Melbourne for five years and those boys would now be well and truly adult. But I wonder 
I wonder whether they are Christians. I wonder whether they got embittered and discouraged. Now, the $64,000 question. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the bit for the wives to read. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's the bit for the husbands to read and take in. Domestic violence should not happen in the Christian community, but it does. And sometimes the husbands who are battering their wives are even clergy to the shame of the church. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In another place, Paul reminds husbands that they should love their wives as they love and care for their own body. We need to hear this clearly and powerfully in the church. Because power corrupts, even if it's just a little bit of power. Being a parent, being a husband, uh, being a clerk somewhere who can either 